0: no-name podcast. My name is Ryan Warner, joined by Dustin and Ellie. Hey, Dustin and Ellie. Howdy. Hello. Probably weeks gone. Ellie, it's been a couple weeks since we talked last, and uh, I've been super lazy in getting our podcast posted. So we had a good podcast last week. You missed, uh, but no one's heard it yet. You'll just have to trust us on that. But I'm going to get that done, I hope, today at some point, Dustin, we'll get all those backlogs. Logged.
1: We were just talking about how the to do list is getting backlogged lately.
0: Oh, tell me about it. It's crazy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, it's, it's funny. It, it's a, the whole it rains and pours thing. Uh, as soon as I uh, accepted your uh, uh, business opportunity, I've had two more drop in my lap, like literally within 48 hours of saying yes to yours. It was like, oh, crap. Now I got too much to do. (laughs) One of them is, uh, potentially, uh, I got a a call on Monday to find out what they're willing to pay, but, uh, club for growth wants somebody to do a scorecard for them for North Dakota and I started mine back in May and never finished it.
0: Oh, it never got finished. Okay. Never
1: got finished. (laughs) It, it, it got put on the back burner and, uh, so nice
2: universe.
0: The
1: has, I didn't catch said that. yes.
2: Were you doing it for
1: the Club for Growth, which is okay. it's an old traditional conservative group? Uh, back these, it was started by uh, Stephen Moore before he was in the Trump circles, and uh, Pat Toomey, the senator from Pennsylvania, before he was a senator. I think even before he was a congressman, even, um, and they were the original group that went out and made the term rhino popular and they were the original rhino hunters but what happened in you know uh the interim the club for growth was initially very much anti trump and uh, so trump was was talking bad about them calling them the rhinos and and so you know the, the former Democrat calling the, the original rhino hunters rhinos, you know, it worked with the people that didn't know the history of the conservative movement. But for all the rest of us, we were like, uh, you, you know, do you know who you're talking about here, man? And the irony of it being a, a group that was started by one of his primary economic advisors uh, is also kind of funny. These are these are the. Uh, Art Laffer of the Laffer Curve was also involved with this. So if you've heard of Laffer Curve, these are the guys that uh, were heavily involved with with that sort of uh, the, the hard economics of trickle-down basically.
2: Interesting. Thanks for sharing.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the universe course, is like that. Yeah. Once you say yes to one thing. It's Everything like the, else falls it's in the your lap.
1: yeah, and well, I, with with these guys going back and forth with each other, it, it it reminds me of the old Batman quote: "You either die a hero, or you live long enough to see yourself the villain." And <laughs> and that's what has apparently happened with the Club for Growth and Cato Institute. It's it's hilarious. I I, I would follow the Cato Institute's uh, Facebook page, and all these Trumpsters go on there claiming that Cato is a bunch of communists. I'm like, really. Do you guys have any clue about anything in the world?
2: (laughs) Nope. Definitely new to the party. (laughs) Ryan, what have you been up to?
0: Not a whole heck of a lot. Uh, Just my to-do list, like I mentioned, is out of control. It's been um, very busy work-wise and uh, so hard to get any time set aside for the other stuff. We did get a new kitten, though, to share that with the podcast listeners. Uh, our old cat died back in mid-August now. Of natural causes, we didn't have to put him down. That was nice. It um, was a nice death experience, actually, all things considered. And so we waited about six weeks or so and got a new kitten. And uh, we got a main Coon. I'm not sure how many people are into the cat breeds. Um, I had a lot of learning to do, but a mangle is a Maine cat, a Maine coon cat, which is a big, fluffy, furry cat from Maine breed kind. And then the other one is a bangle. The bangle looks like a tiny little bangle tiger with spots. So this is a mixed hybrid now called a mangle. And I didn't know too much about it except that it was a cool looking kitten and uh, got it. And this kitten is really cool. I gotta say, uh, my wife is slightly allergic to cats. And so we've had cats for like, you know, over 10 years now and she loves cats, but they do kind of give her a little bit allergic reaction. This cat, on the other hand, I guess one of the claims of the breeze is that it's hypoallergenic. And anytime I see that an animal is hypoallergenic, I'm like, sure it is. Okay. I believe you when I I see it. And so we got this cat thinking maybe it's hypoallergenic, maybe it's not. Turns out it is hypoallergenic, at least to my wife's slight allergies. So great uh, turn of events for her because now she can pet the cat without getting itchy. Uh, So the cat's cool, the cat's like a dog. I I think that one of the selling points of the breeds is that it's like kind of a dog in terms of um, connections to humans, wanting to be around humans play with humans. So we have two small kids and um, the previous cats and the current cat don't really like these small kids. Uh, They're always kind of running away, uh, screaming at them and uh, just uh, not friends with the little kids. This kitten, on the other hand, loves the little, little kids, lets them play with her, lets them take her places carrier places. Uh, so it's really good with little kids as well. So another plus for this breed so far is that it seems to be pretty sweet with small kids. And perhaps all kittens are sweet with small kids. I don't know. It's been a long time since we had a kitten and uh, we just had small kids. So no testing available. One one thing that has gone slightly wrong is this: that this kitten uh, came with some uh, ringworm and some ear mites. And uh, so the now the all the kids have uh, some ringworm, which is like a, it's not even a worm. It's just like an itchy little rash, uh, from petting the cat. And, uh, once you get it, it's apparently really hard to get rid of. So we're got our fingers crossed. Everyone's washing their hands and stuff, but, uh, (laughs) that's on the con side. These kittens are dirty. These are dirty, dirty kittens. Um, but we're going to the vet tomorrow. We're going to hopefully get it all inoculated against these various pests that it's carrying. And uh, yeah, so so far so good. It's fun to have a little kitten. Uh, it's obviously lots of uh, comedic effect when it jumps off things and crashes into the wall and plays in a box for a half hour. All kinds of shenanigans. So all in all, a good relationship starting here with our kitten. That's pretty much all I got going. That and a bunch of work that's boring. Uh, what I wanted to ch- uh, check in with um, Dustin, at least, would be the stuff on the special session I've only read a couple articles, and and like we spoke about last week, all it does is fill me with anxiety, so I don't get too deep into it because I'm like, oh, no, what's going to happen now? I'm only fearing the worst, but I would like to know what's happening. I think our listeners would like to know, and um, so if you could talk a little bit about the session itself, I know part of it is the redistricting effect, and then the other part is there's a big pot of money that people want to get a lick in on. Uh, so how's it going uh, what have you learned so far and, and where did all this money come from and how and how, how can folks get it <laughs> um,
1: so so yeah the special session will start um, November 8th I believe and uh, it, it primarily the first thing will be redistricting but yeah the, the a American recovery something something act a AR PA or something uh, is federal money that came through last year already. They didn't have a good handle on what the dollars were going to be about at this regular session. So they kicked it forward to this special session that the the governor's got this this whole uh, strategy that he wants to do. And legislators are saying, yeah, we're not doing that yeah legislators are saying we're doing our own thing and then you got and those are the, the ones in charge and then you got the legislators who aren't in charge who are throwing out these wild ideas uh magram threw out this idea of well we're, let's just divide it out and send it to everybody and you know we didn't ask for the money and so we're just going to give it back to everybody and my response to it was well you know if your If your point is that the federal government should be spending this money, I'd be more impressed if you sent it back. Like th- nobody's offering that solution, but uh, uh, yeah, everybody's got their ideas. Bergham wants to offset a, a chunk of our spending, and then there is also uh, our general fund not including the this money from the feds is running a surplus and, and he's proposed a two year up to $500 tax credit for each year, which is a traditional Democrat approach to uh, giving back tax money. You know, Republicans traditionally are about reducing rates permanently. Uh, whereas Democrats want to you know, give a credit have a cap on income so that it, it goes to the bottom first. Um, and, and so that there's not a big benefit for the rich. Uh, according to my sources, the legislature is not interested in Bergam's tax credit idea. Uh, the, the general, uh, consensus is that they are also not looking at reducing rates either. So again, once again, taxpayers get left out in the cold, uh, the the, the only reason to not do it would be to, to just bank it because we are going to have some considerable construction inflation. Uh, cost inflators going on here shortly next. Uh, building seasons, probably going to have an inflation rate of about 10 to 15%, which is something we haven't seen in one year for public construction projects, at least since the shovel ready projects. Of obama uh if not further back because that money came in the same time the boom was really clicking so uh we had we had inflation pretty serious then but uh uh yeah they they got all sorts of wild ideas and, and uh, it doesn't sound like they're really on the same page at all which is not shocking you know because there's. There's five different Republican parties at this point, so they can't. How much ever...
0: money, how much money is available? And are, are there any strings attached or is this just a big pile of money?
1: There's a billion dollar, 1.2 billion, I believe is the total federal dollar chunk. There are strings attached, uh, but there's this feeling that they can kind of do what they want, even though there are <laughs> strings attached just nobody's watching North Dakota. I don't know. I mean, (laughs) they've, they've, they don't have a plan. They don't have any sort of guidance. Uh, I think, you know, obviously, uh, Burgum's plan was, was outlined and all that. And, and he had you know, 20, 20 some buckets that he wants to put the money into. But, uh, if the legislature is not interested, they're gonna do their own thing. I know Ray Holmberg has been uh, uh, talking about the the construction costs and and applying a lot of this money towards infrastructure because the actual infrastructure portion of the infrastructure bill that's in the works is not actually going to infrastructure. Uh, And so, you know, it's a matter of putting putting whatever pieces we can that kind of offset future costs. Uh, so there, there's not a really good answer to how they're going to spend it because they don't know. And uh, it'll be interesting because that the, uh, they have four days left within their own legislative bucket that they can use. If they go beyond that, they have to rely on the governor to call them back in. And if, the governor doesn't think that they are going to do what he wants uh then he could opt to not call them back in and, and just push the money forward to next session
0: nice well are you planning to be to be active down there dustin are you
1: that's the plan yep <laughs> yeah well, one way or another luck. at least uh at least showing my face
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I'm going to have to lean on you then for some insight in, into what's happening because um, I think I'm refusing. I'm sitting this one out. I only read the headlines. I saw the headline where the, the Democrats had a plan for uh, how to spend a billion dollars. And I was yeah, like, people care even less about that. Next. Yeah, I was <laughs> like, swipe. I don't want to see this plan. They
1: don't even care. People don't care what the Republicans want to do. now. <laughs> I know. Why would they care what the Democrats want to do?
0: I <laughs> know. I was like, oh, great. Put that on my reading list. I'm sure, it'll be very yeah. good time spent. Uh, well, yeah. So, um, we we'll just have to continue to monitor it. Um, I, I, you know, obviously, I like the idea of a universal basic income. Anything coming from the federal government that you can spread it evenly across the citizenry uh, seems like a good, good um, principle to stick with. Whether that's infrastructure um, or cash straight cash from the government. Um, I think that that's probably the fairest way to take care of it. Um, I get concerned when they, we start um, funneling into special interests. Um, that said, some special interests uh, do require extra funding because we haven't funded them for a long time. Um, typically, the ones would be like social services <laughs> and the other things that uh, don't get good PR uh, and lobby, lobbying efforts every year. Um, but we'll see where it goes. It's
1: been funded. It's just a matter of it's not funded at the level that some people want, you know, the, the, the increases in those areas have been just as high as any others. So, uh, you know, it gets into this, this debate over, well, you wanted 20%, you got 12%. That, that doesn't mean you got less, you know, that, that's, that's the debate over the, the $3.5 trillion bill at the federal government level is well. They initially wanted 3.5, and they got all, it's getting ramped down to 2 trillion, and people are acting like that's a cut. Well, just because you didn't get what you wanted doesn't mean that you're not getting more. I mean, there's money in there for you. You know, this idea that it, a, a increase that's not as big as you wanted is still, or is it somehow that is a cut? Is this mentality that that the political types at DC that the DC level have to get rid of? You know, if you get ten percent, take the ten percent, quit not blame.
0: Yeah, and it depends on what you know what gets cut out of the bill. I see that uh, Mansion apparently is going to get the, uh, the clean energy um, transition, you know, mandatory transition language taken out, which was um, was a variety of incentives and disincentives that would allow, you know, give the correct motivation to the utilities to move away from coal-fired and gas-powered plants uh, for electricity generation. And it looks like that's going to get stripped out completely. That was one of his red lines. And uh, being a coal baron, I guess that would be a red line of a coal baron. Uh, so that that's disappointing. I don't know what that does to the actual overall budget figure. Um, but um, stuff like that, you know, that was the hope of this bill was that it would actually be a um, something we could point back to and be like, okay, that was the start of um, legitimate climate change um, policymaking in the right direction. And then, and, and who knows if, if maybe, you know, it will be um, when we look back, but that's the disappointment is as things get cut out, the things that get cut out are the, the, the things that, you know, really matter um, whether you want money for this or that special interest group project or um, part of the economy. Um, I agree with you, Dustin. You get what you can, and uh, that's just sometimes what you gotta live with. But some of these other things are very important, and we we, we should. Um, I don't know if mansion can be uh, reasoned with, but stuff like the uh, transitioning away from those uh, fossil fuel based energy uh, electricity um, uh, sources. All right, that's very important. We gotta figure out figure out what that looks like. Whether it's um, a subsidy to change over or whatever it looks like, we got to have a plan because that's, you know, it's a huge chunk of what we're trying to accomplish with this bill, at least as far as I understand it. So to be determined on that as well. Um, I'm in the same boat with local politics when it comes to that bill. I just hope they do something before the end of the year um, because it's time's uh, wasting away and they're losing a lot of political capital, just um, fighting amongst themselves those squirrely Democrats. So with that, um, Ellie, how has your week been? I know uh, it's been a couple weeks since we spoke. Um, We we touched a little bit on local and national politics. Is there anything that uh, you've had your eye on um, since we last spoke?
2: Well, busy with a lot of family-related matters, but at work, um, pretty busy as well. We are working on um, some reporting that was mandated by the legislature. Um, And, you know, I I don't have a lot of knowledge or experience when it comes to the federal public sector. And I know that there are some differences between the state public sector and the federal public sector. And I don't always know what generalizes and what doesn't. Um, But so I, I don't know if my insights from state government really translate to federal government or not. But um, in our case, the demand, like the demands on agencies increase whether the workers like it or not. And for all kinds of reasons, some of them is the sort of, I wanna say sloppy, sloppiness is a really strong word. I don't, but like the casual, casualness, with which some politicians and bureaucrats just, like, increase the size of government in terms of, like, the performance of the government supposed to do. Um, and then workers just have to deal with the consequences. And some of it is genuine demand for the services increasing in a way that's really difficult to get a, away from. Um, like, for example, let's say your community, suddenly a whole bunch of families who for whom English is their second language, like, move in. Like they move in because uh, where they lived before, uh, there was a lot of turmoil and it was, so they're, you know, they're a, whether officially refugee or not, you know, they're seeking refuge from an economic, political or environmental situation. You come into your community, maybe they're working at a meat packing plant or something. So then all their kids start going to your school and they're quote called English learners. Uh, English is not their primary language. And so they need some extra help in school to be able to become a bilingual person and keep up. Um, so great, now your school district has all so much more demand and doesn't have the budget for it. Um, that can happen at all levels of government that I have personally experienced. And so I, that was obviously a, an example that wasn't state government per se, that was a school district situation. But you can imagine just Demands on agencies just increase for, like, reasons that are so beyond our control and are just these, like, social forces of things going on out there. Like, if a hurricane displaces people, like, what what am I supposed to do about that? You know what I mean? Like, and that, that increases my workload, like, if I, let's say, like, I am, um, uh, I work at a school, and I suddenly have all these kids that I'm supposed to support in this way, and I don't have the money for it, and so now I'm getting really, really burnt out doing two people's jobs at once or something like that like that can cause the growth for or like the need for government to increase uh, based on the expectations of the institutions um so what i find is the reason i think like again i can't really speak for the federal government but the reason that public sector people sometimes really want pretty substantial increases in funding is because they they know it in their bones that they're underfunded. They can feel how run ragged they are. I mean, the stories you hear about uh, parole officers and other people who work with members of the community, like the amount of people like let's say you're just some kind of either a social worker or law enforcement position where you're supposed to keep tabs on somebody. Like over the years, you're supposed to be keeping tabs on more and more and more and more people because so for for social reasons, there are more people who have engaged in crippled activity or more people who have special needs or whatever. And like you get funded like at inflation, but not really enough to actually do the work you're expected to do. It is insulting. And there's just no adjustment on the expectations of your performance most of the time. I mean, if you're lucky, your supervisor goes to bat for you against someone powerful and says, no, you are asking too much of my people. And then there are boundaries put up, but there's just a, a lot of that doesn't happen. Um, and so, you know, I understand the idea that um, an increase is an increase. Like don't be like greedy or inefficient, you know, but like, we have to know that perhaps the ground has been shifting under the feet of the people who actually are that department, like, for all we know, it's a nightmare and that like, they, they need like a third more of the personnel than they used to have. And maybe a prior, uh, extremely stingy budget made them lay off people who they really needed, maybe they're really screwed. And so, you know, what I've at times I've been at work just been like, well, people would just expect less of me. I guess it wouldn't be a b- big deal that I think there should be three of me here. Like, give me, you know, give me a third of the work, and it's fine that it's just me. But uh, y'all want three of me. You know that I've often felt that way, and so uh, that does have me clamoring for as much funding as possible, knowing that it might round out a department that I support, and like I might be less driven insane by have you know juggling fifty balls in the air. Um, so I, I think that I, I really wish, like, I'll just be really honest with you guys. I really wish politicians gave a shit. I really wish that they, when they cut or enhance a budget or whatever, I really wish that they were actually cared about the work being done and how to, you know, because I mean, just ask the workers, like, you know, what, look, look, look at this budget with me. Like, you know, wh- where do you see this working well? Where do you see this not working well? I mean, you would learn so much if, if they actually gave a shit. And actually cared about the work itself and it just seems like a lot of politicians don't care about public service being decent don't care about public service being. defined you know narrowly or expansively whatever define the damn thing decide what is the endeavor we're doing here, and what is the expectation okay that's expectation, you want politician person, this is what it costs like the sloppiness in any direction is just silly. Because, you know, you could see something's underfunded, and something else is also a total waste of money you can you can simultaneously see. You know, like funding, not just underfunding or overfunding but just misalignment of priorities and funding and it's just really difficult and like so I, while I would be um, comfortable, I mean I guess i'm, I'm willing to live with whatever uh, budget, but please let the work expectations fit that budget. And politicians should actually take their job seriously. They should like think of it like running a household or something. Actually care, like ha- have a vested interest in how this all plays out. Don't like enjoy that there are people like pulling their hair out at work, or like don't be so indifferent to like how you're running everyone ragged. And like it's like I guess you just hope government collapses and you can like be like, Whoa. like you know, wh- why don't you just strategically and intelligently? Build government that is leaner, but like with thoughtfulness and not this just like. So, yeah, anyways, that is my sort of <laughs> partially emotional response to how like not deliberate and thoughtful a lot of funding and government scope and size decisions really are. And I know when everything's like a crazy compromise battle or whatever or like a battle towards it and some compromise and say i get that that's difficult but it just seems like uh i just think sometimes politicians don't even realize what job they're supposed to be doing like they don't even like it's like you guys aren't here to grandstand or like be you know secretly experimental like spell it out collaborate make some damn sense like i'm i'm tired (laughs) i'm tired of being understaffed and let's be realistic here
1: i think that what you're really talking about is unfunded mandates number one and then that coupled with the politicians that don't think that the government should be doing that job to begin with and so they don't care so it it is there is a There's a level of, okay, well, they're, they're, they should be doing something. You know, they, when, when the feds, uh, force the state to do something the the state is going to put the absolute minimum number of dollars into doing that, that the federal matching requires. And then you're expected to be able to do the job for those dollars, whether that means hiring another person or does not mean hiring another person. Uh, This is the danger of the unfunded mandates from the federal level. And and this is the real trickle down that actually does trickle down. And that is when the feds require the state to do something, but only give the state, you know, 60 cents on the dollar to do it and say, okay, in order to get these 60 cents, you got to put in 10 cents. Well, you're still 30 cents short on getting the job done, but the, there's no there's no reason that the state would spend the extra 30 cents because they're not required to, because of the federal law. So, uh, that's what people, both conservatives that want to cut the budgets, don't understand, is that there when you take these federal dollars, you are dedicating a certain number of state dollars to that project as well, and then on the on the employee side. I think that there's a lack of understanding that the legislature is not really wanting to do this. They're being forced to, and they're taking the dollars that they can and putting the bare minimum in to get those dollars. And uh, the the employees get stuck in the middle. And that's, I would say that the way that the federal government has designed these things, it, it is by design that there is, it is destined to always have somebody getting pinched because they know how the states are gonna act. Federal government knows that states are not gonna put any more money into the match than they absolutely have to. And if that doesn't get the job done, well, nobody at the federal or state level cares. So just to like kind of
2: illustrate an example is um, and I, I can't go into too much detail because, you know, it is my employer situation and I have to be respectful, but, um, you know, schools received ESSER funding and the leg- uh, now our legislature and obviously ESSER, you know, came from the federal government initially. Um, but our legislature has decided that uh, school districts have to do some reporting on how they use those funds and their plan to use those funds towards um, addressing learning loss and so this was this is in law Uh, this is from the last legislative session and uh, maybe it's like house bill 1013 or something and um, essentially they spell out what is to happen you know what districts are to provide to specifically dpi and then dpi is to um create an aggregate report and you know taking that mandate from the uh, or like just reporting mandate it's, it's you know it's not a massive thing but um taking it from the letter of the law and putting it into a really high quality report um and working with the districts in that way it sounds really great on paper. And I mean, I can really envision getting it all done, but like districts are some, like some districts are just so hard to work with right now. Cause they're just like in this panicked emergency mode. And it's like, I just wish that sometimes I wish that there was just more understanding of like, cool. You guys want districts to do all this work and you want DPI to deal with them when they're crabby about it but you guys get to just sit back and like (laughs) I don't it's like outsourcing something and I get it, it it is the role of all these institutions to do this like like this is totally reasonable within the scope of DPI and the school districts but it's like we're having these conversations where it's like well, we already collected this piece of data from them over here. Maybe we can take that and incorporate this in the report so we don't have to bother them and ask them to kind of kind of repeat themselves slash, you know, repeat and add an update. Then there's the other philosophy of like, well, the legislature said this exactly in law. And if we follow the letter of law, we have to be really hardcore about this and we have to demand that the districts give us this. We can't utilize what we already have, or like and this just debate of like how much work we can squeeze out of districts. While simultaneously, like making the legislature happy, while not pissing off the school districts too much, slash, maybe just piss them off and like you know just deal with it. It's just it's like an interesting process where I I'm like trying to advocate for one thing, but I realize that I'm trying to advocate for multiple things at the same time. Like you know I'm not a huge fan of bureaucracy for bureaucracy's sake. So I will suggest. Efficiencies or streamlining, but then sometimes those ideas turn out they, and someone will say, No, that really does contradict what is written right there in Century Code. So sorry, like we have to do this most inefficient way possible. And I'm like, Great, everyone's gonna love that. Um, anyway, so these are the challenges that I'm just encountering, and I do feel like I'm learning a lot about these political battles from a particular vantage point, and I just at least thank you for humoring me on this. I I wish that there were legislators who really wanted to hear more from me. And um, it would just be and and, and it would be nice if there like just wasn't antagonism between or if there was antagonism between politicians, I wish that they could manage it better and focus on the real work sometimes, because I do think we could have higher quality public service and like even greater efficiencies if Uh, Things weren't just so, uh, I guess I just want to say, so full of conflict at times when it's really, it really should be about um, accepting that we're not always going to be on the same page or not always going to like each other, but we've all agreed that this is the job we're going to do, and you know, there should be something to, "Hey, hey, you lost, like you didn't want this agency to expand in this way, you know, like But you are in the legislature and now it's your job to support what the majority of your colleagues voted for. I'm not saying people should do anything that they're ethically opposed to, but like if some agency was funded more than somebody wanted, but because the scope of the work is being demanded of them is at a certain level. I just think thinking like, well, I don't think that work should be done anyway. So I don't care. It's just, it's, that's rough and not very responsible. That's like, I just think that I wish that they would just continue to work on their, like, persuasive appeal to sh- shrink a part of government, but in the meantime, be more supportive of that part of government functioning. Because it's like, that's, like, for me, as a more progressive-leaning person in a conservative community, I have to accept, like, certain conservative things are the way we're doing things right now. And I just work on my persuasion skills to shed light on things I'm, I think might, sh- might need to be different. But if like, I just didn't do work I didn't wanna do, or I didn't support work getting done that I didn't agree with, like just, just the, the chaos and like the selfishness, like all involved in that is just a lot for me. And uh, I think we can have a better way. And I just, it would be cool if people would like have this sort of long view about being persuasive and working towards accomplishing their goals and not like a slash and burn or knock down the house of cards, like kind of approach as, as a public servant or someone who is engaging in public service. Um, I wish that a lot of politicians were more teammates as opposed to like jerks. I don't know.
1: So, so back in let's say 07 to 011 era. Um, when, when we were at the tail end of of fully understanding how bad no Chad left behind was and and Republicans were fully against anything Obama wanted to do on education. There was a effort by the red light district, which was the predecessor to the Bastiat's uh, to try to figure out how much, uh, well, we, we knew how much federal money was coming into education. At that point, 11% of all education dollars were federal. There was an effort, And that that equated to about $280 million a year, I think, or or a biennium. And there was an effort and a a serious discussion among some of if we've rejected all federal money and strictly funded with North Dakota dollars, how much workload would that reduce as far as overhead, uh, what you're talking about and, and the actual load on teachers. Uh, as far as mandatory testing and, and things that, that don't necessarily go into the learning process um, that fell to the wayside but you know I'm wondering based on what you're saying if perhaps that concept which was a very hardline conservative concept, from your perspective of somebody actually doing the job if, an analysis of that would be worthwhile you know if 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 the overload on work is exceeding the amount of money and ftes that are being provided by the funding then maybe there's a convergence of both the the actual people doing the work and the conservative philosophy where we can We should actually look at, hey, are we actually benefiting from these federal dollars or is it just causing everybody more stress and less results? Do do you think we're we're getting to an area where that sort of thinking might be necessary?
2: I mean, I'm open to a lot. So like my, you know, and you you've hinted at this kind of a topic before, um, and I'm receptive to the conversation. I feel like there's a lot of ground to cover before a really good study is designed. I think that uh, one challenge is that I mean, I, I I don't think I'm alone. I think there's other people who are more inspired by you know appropriately sized government and what it can do, or progressive leading people or whatever, who would sympathize with my point of view. And so I think there are people on i don't want to say like all sides because i think there's some people who are just inherently would hate that idea but um i think but but we're from different paradigms like the paradigm from which i am in that makes me open to that idea is a different paradigm from like the more conservative one and so getting on the same page not saying anybody has to change their paradigm but getting an understanding of the other paradigm and like kind of understanding where things overlap where there's like a mutual interest in like stuff that makes sense, you know, just like sensible practice and policy and stuff. Um, I think there's work to do there to get on the same page. So I would think this would not be something that could be done quickly or casually, but would involve like, you know, a considerable amount of conversation between people. And then secondly, I think that it's, and I think um, Ryan will sympathize with what I'm about to say. I think there's a really big difference between like something that cuts the actual services that people need as a lifeline versus something that are cu- cutting the bureaucracy of the services. So like, I don't know anybody out there well, it's not true, but I, I don't know anybody I guess who's on my side of things, um, who would want to make it harder for children, English learners, you know, kids who, you know, groups sp- speaking Spanish or whatever else at first we don't want to see those services go away for them we we just find that just really icky and and unkind and not how we want to treat children but we wouldn't mind if a lot of the paperwork could go and like but you have to strike that balance you know you need some accountability you can't just like do whatever you want behind closed doors but like there's so much accountability that is done that like doesn't really have much of a material benefit and it does take up a lot of time and sometimes you hire entire FTEs just to navigate that crap so that the main worker doesn't have to and stuff like that so having some kind of just just a philosophy like if progressives of the more or I know I know Ryan you're like an anarchist but kind of a progressive leaning anarchist like and people like myself who just we don't really like bureaucracy and and conservatives don't really like it either like if we could just But we have to admit like some of us really do like the services for the like disadvantaged youth or whatever, you know, pull out your example. Like keeping the services that we need for those members of our community while streamlining it and making make the workers only focus on the things they love, which is helping those kids and not a ton of paperwork would be helpful. So I just think what's tricky is giving up any of that money. It feels really difficult because some of it is really addressing a true need. But like, you know, when you're hiring people and their entire job is basically compliance of, you know, it's like, wow, like, like you just, <laughs> you, you just made a job that it actually doesn't have any substance on its own. There's no, you know, I mean, unless I, I understand there's some industries where uh, industries where people die a lot, I guess maybe you need to have um, a, a like more um, rigorous Um, compliance and maybe employees specializing that I get that but it just seems like there's a lot of very tedious, uninspiring stuff that does cost money and it only is because of the reporting expectations and like, I guess, you know, I'm like, just as a small example, the reporting from school districts and how they're using the ESSER funding, like it seems like on some level, like I think a lot of the legislators aren't really gonna, some are gonna pay really close attention to the resulting report that emerges, but a lot won't. And if they just like wanted some bare bones accountability where it's like, okay, you do have to, you know, track your spending, like you have to, let me say like, uh, keep receipts, so to speak. And like, yeah, we expect you to save that in a spreadsheet, here's here's a template, like whatever. And like, yep, thank you, do that. Um, you know, but there, there has to be a narrative. So like, there, there's this narrative reporting on how these monies are being spent, not just like keeping the receipts and stuff. And like, that's where you need to hire people, like, to, to do that. And th- th- you, you're like hiring people to describe the work being done. But like, you know, the work, it, the work getting done is what's important, not somebody narrating about it. And like, but that was created, by the legislatures, you know, the way they they wrote that particular section of the bill. So anyways, I'm kind of rambling at this point. I'm receptive to the idea. I think it will take a really long time to get it to really look right and answer the right questions. I think anything that um, fails to be nuanced enough to understand that some of the monies are addressing real services and needs. It's just that some of the money is also just paying for narration or triple bookkeeping about it you know and that like that's like the most that's not the most useful use of human time um that recognition would be good and i think part part of the problem too is like a lot of the ideology of distrust like like thinking that everyone is squandering money or is incompetent and we need to scrutinize everything like On the one hand i do believe that we do need to be careful and pay attention to things because when we don't we see a lot of for example racial discrimination i mean we definitely need checks on things like that but also having a little bit of trust in the people doing the work could go a long way and like i feel like sometimes excessive distrust results in more bureaucracy where it's not really needed and you know we know like with some kinds of welfare all the means testing is the waste of money and that like like literally like just giving people the support they need and not really vigorously scrutinizing them like with drug testing or something like that is actually more efficient and cheaper and I just feel like that kind of finding I would love to scale it up all over the place like get rid of means testing and bureaucracy that actually just create busy work that's and and like or you know in some cases even humiliation but like um Anyway, so that's just a long-winded way of saying I'm into it. I would love to sit down with people with different viewpoints and just talk about it. And I would love for them to actually listen to me too. Like I, I'm I'm really ready to be listened to on these matters because I really do think I have something to share that is of value. Um, and I just wish I, I want legislators on people in their orbit and people focus on policy to like assign value to the perspective of the workers. And if you can trust that the worker is not some total ditz who's like fine with just the just like the unregulated growth of government, just woo, you know, just trust that we also are want to be good stewards. We also don't like waste. I mean, I'm sure some people don't care, but I know I do and I have colleagues who also care. So give us a shot, give us a listen, let's have some conversation. I you know maybe in in like five five years is a long time maybe maybe we like three years you know we have a study like we develop something that is really truly meaningful. I'm receptive to that, and of course, any anything I did like that would be in my capacity as a private citizen. I cannot do anything like that on behalf of my employer unless I'm assigned to. So I can only speak as a private citizen, but I think I have some insights um, worth sharing.
0: You
1: know the the, the overly simplified. Uh, metric you that was talked about a lot when I started and isn't talked about all that much anymore is the in classroom versus non in classroom costs and I know that when we were looking that at that years ago k-12 was high 20s non in classroom higher ed was already in the 40s as far as non in classroom and and that's obviously out of control when you're spending almost half your money in, in non classroom uh, roles you're, you're spending more to administrate the program than you're spending on the program and, and and that that is a metric and a problem that I think both the people running the show and the people who want to reduce the cost of the show uh, can agree on uh, and and getting to that number you know it I mean it, it, if you're in business and you've got administrative overhead between 20 and 40 percent you're screwed you're, you're not in business unless you're healthcare and you've got guaranteed uh, insurance payments coming in. Uh, but any other business, if you're in that area, you're not in business very long. Uh, so uh, I think that figuring out how to, how to get the actual employees doing the job to recognize that it's in their best benefit to help the legislature figure out where that sweet spot is, so that they're not funding uh, more administrative overhead than they want to, and you're not doing more work than you can possibly do as a human. Uh, I think that that is the, the target to get to. And it's just a matter of how do you get there, and how do you get people who genuinely want to figure out the real number from both sides to be the ones in the room figuring out the number.
2: Yeah, that's a little tough because there are a lot of people who are a bit intimidated, and and there is, you know, like if you're if you're one of those workers, but you know that when it, one or more of your supervisors really wouldn't be keen on you participating in this um, process, it's it's tricky. I mean, people still have a right as a private citizen to do whatever they want, but you know, people get intimidated. But I think. Mm-hmm you know, as I am on the board of North Dakota United now and collaborating with staff on, you know, of the org, and we are trying to change the culture of public sector workers. We're trying to normalize, like, being participatory in our own governance and talking about the work and the issues. And we're one thing that we're doing in North Dakota United is just to try to make people more familiar with us. Like, like have these kind of touch points send send a postcard and you know do a phone call and do a door knock and like take down the fear level of talking about work talking about your life on the job and and then from there we think really good things can happen Um, and, and so, of course, some of that will be at times, you know, disagreeing with the legislature and being comfortable saying so, but it doesn't have to be, you know, the enemy type of thing. It can be more the selective opponent thing where then, you know, but we can be collaborators in other ways. And so I think, um, I, I think, yeah, getting the right people there takes time is a little tricky, but what I'll just say for now, if you, if you know of people who you think are sort of emotionally ready to take. Me seriously, I can say I'm definitely ready to take them seriously. Then, like, let's get people together to talk. You know, I think just no, you just select the people who are uh, intellectually curious and humble enough to hear the other person's concerns and viewpoints, and are genuinely motivated to see if we can spot compromise and pursue it. And um, so, whoever's ready for that conversation, I know that I where I am in. My headspace right now. I'm very ready for it. I just want to feel like I'm going to be received well, and it can be a little scary. And I'm one of the more bold and shameless of my uh, fellow public sector workers. So if it's a little bit, you know, if I feel like, a little scared sometimes, then you know, a lot of my counterparts are intimidated. So that's why I, I don't mind a little, a little pre-screening, a little filtering for someone who is ready. And I don't care if that person's extremely conservative. If they have the sort of um, um, emotional correctness, you know, like I, I remember there's this distinction, uh, between political correctness and emotional correctness. And like, if they have the emotional correctness when they interact with somebody who may have different viewpoints, I think that's, that's enough. That's enough to get started. So yeah, I'm, I'm open to next steps and conversations and, I'll, uh, just cross my fingers that I won't upset too many people and I'll just try to keep my Employer out of it.
1: Yeah. It yeah. it I I I think that like, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is, you know, it would for someone like me to find a legislator who would be open to this, it would be nice to have input from people who are doing the work that, you know, said, Here are the ways that we could make ourselves more efficient if we were allowed to be more efficient what laws are preventing us as workers from being more efficient? What laws are requiring us to spend more time and money than we even think we should be spending? Uh, and then you know figuring out what that actually equates to if, if you know if you had a way to, to develop some sort of a, a report like that, if you had you know put together a group of people, uh, you know, maybe it's within an ND United or something, uh, where where you actually develop a an improvement plan that would result in less money being spent, but a better product. You 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 would be finding the finding the efficiencies, as politicians <laughs> like to say, for them, because it, politicians talk about it. They don't know what's going on at the ground level. You guys do know that, yeah, there are areas where we could cut, and nobody would notice a difference. No, no customer would notice a difference in the quality of the product. And if if there is a change, it's going to be an improved quality rather than a diminishing quality. Uh, I think that if if there was some more, if if somehow there was a, a bottom up approach to that formula, that 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 would get the ball rolling in this area a lot easier. If you could give, here are our top 10 or top five or whatever things that make us inefficient, that would get the ball rolling a lot easier.
2: So I could definitely imagine getting to that point, but a little help on the journey would be good because right now, first of all, I'll just be honest, like. Well, let's just focus on state laws. Forget federal stuff right now, just because like, that's a bit over my head for the moment. But like, you know, I only have read so much of Century Code, even the parts that actually relate to the work I do for the agencies that I interact with. And so there's a lot of homework to be done there. (laughs) So I can't go be ranking top five or top 10 when I have done my homework. But I do have some experiences that are illustrative. And I think that by sharing those and a safe space where someone's not gonna immediately go tell something, you know, this is what she said, you know, like I, I would like it to be, um, um, you know, politicians and people in their orbit who are not looking to ever weaponize anything shared um so that it is safe to be honest I would love to share certain things I've observed about you know I felt like this was a stupid waste of time and that you know share what that was and then and here's where I felt like we weren't provided enough support and I would have wished I could have just taken this budget item and just push it over here because I would love to share that in a safe space where it's only going to be digested for learning and reflection, not for weaponization. And then people who are more versed in actual century code, et cetera, saying, "Okay, well now you're making me think about this. What about this?" They come back at me with follow-up questions or prompts because they see they see where I'm going with that. Because like my my examples are going to be a little arbitrary, you know, and sp- and overly specific, like nobody really truly cares about this one thing that was paid for and higher at this one time uh, anymore. But at the time it was worth, you know, I, I sent it up the chain that it wasn't a good use of resources. And like, you know, two years later, it was eliminated. But um, it's a very specific example and it's it's dead now. So, you know, it's, it's more about the, the illust- illustrating an example. And then saying, so what do you guys think this might be similar? And I would just appreciate some prompts, and just that back and forth, where then I start to understand the lay of the land in a new way. I have a, I have more of a like uh, mental schema, like for approaching century code, and it's about like building a, a, like a knowledge base and like bringing our institutional memory to together and so anyways I guess what I'm saying is your idea it sounds feasible to me but it's I'm I personally am quite a ways away yeah from getting there and I feel like it would be helpful like I would love for people to ask you know tell me after they hear something from me something say well, what about this and then they throw something out and then I can riff off of that and say do I feel like that's the same do I feel like it's different does it highlight I would love to highlight emergent themes like like umbrella themes like so, like my little arbitrary experiences i know they fit into a broader fabric but i don't know what it looks like yet i don't have the expertise but by talking to people who have spent time thinking about these themes, they may help me build that framework and then when we have that framework then i can say okay here's the top five here or, or whatever and you know what i'm saying so hopefully that's like a you know, hopefully you understand what I'm trying to say about working up to that point.
1: Yeah, the, the uh, you know, one area that I know happens a lot, when, when century code ties your hands, it is generally because legislators believe that if they don't tie your hands, that the agency rules will do something that either is the most cost inefficient way of doing it to to abide by what they perceive as law, or that the, the, the agency just won't acknowledge it, that it's the law. I mean, it, it the where, where century code and agency rules interact, it, I believe is one of these areas that people don't uh, pay a lot of attention to uh, unless they are actually in the interpretation business of those laws to figure out, either what they can do by law or what they can get away with under the law because that's what agency rules are trying to do they're trying to say okay here's what the law says here's what it doesn't say. And we're going to focus on what it doesn't say until it says something different that's that's the nonsense that the legislators really get pissed off about in the bureaucracy because agencies when they when they do their rules process tend to be like. You know it's like the kid that asks dad oh, can i go to go to the park he says no but go ask your mom you know that's kind of what agency rules are if if they can figure out a loophole uh to to what the law says to do what they either want to do or to to direct the money where they want they will do it and then that uh results in the legislature Trying to clamp down on them and, and saying, okay, if you're not gonna go by the spirit of the law, we'll tell you exactly what to do, every nut and bolt, whether it makes sense or not.
2: Yeah. Okay. So I feel like there's three kinds of scenarios that can go on in a situation like that. There, first of all, honestly, like there are just some people who it's like a personality thing, or uh, for lack of a better way of putting it, yeah, they don't care like they, like they, there's some, there are people in government or people in positions of power, um, who absolutely will respond that way. And I get why that would be aggravating to lawmakers. Um, and that's a whole, like, a, like people who the, the workers have more, a more spirit for getting the work done than some of their leadership. I mean, that that's a tricky one. That's tough. And, that's almost like a different conversation. Um, then there's people who actually they do want to do things right. And uh there are so then those people who do want to do things right and do want to honor the process and do believe that it's you know it is legitimate for us to have a legislative branch and for them to make laws and for us to follow them, um those people can follow one of two camps. Those who um don't have a whole bunch of barriers to getting it done and then those who have barriers to getting it done even though they have good intentions and so i think the the most vulnerable people but the people who really are very valuable are people who have the really good intentions but they're navigating barriers and they don't have the good communication with legislators and others about those barriers maybe due to fear of retribution or you know just don't think they're going to be received well and so you know i feel like getting people to speak up about, well, yeah, the reason this is so impossible is blah, 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 like actually saying the thing out loud. Like, why is it that you're trying to skirt this as much as you can? Or like, why are you approaching it in this way that seems a bit crappy? Like, and like making it safe enough for the to answer that honestly, and processing that answer and then realizing that it you know may not be a moral failing of that person or their department or whatever, it may be that there's barriers that we're just not acknowledging and we need to, we need to talk about them and then come up with a plan to move past them. I think they could be really effective. So I, I don't know what to do about the people whose personalities are just genuinely poorly suited to that. I mean, there's just a lot of HR questions about how, you know Well, uh, we've talked a bit about the failing upward and stuff. Um, yeah. And then there's people who, who they 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 mean well and they just happen to lack the barriers. I mean, not you know not everything's a hot mess. There are some things that go well, um, and those people they don't really necessarily know about the barriers, but they are at least an ally in the uh, the idea that we're going for. Um, but yeah, those those that that other group because I think I don't know. It's just um, again that just kind of brings me to more conversation. If people could just talk frankly about the barriers to um, doing the high quality work that is really expected. I And, and it, it is hard, it is really hard. I don't know, people are defensive, scared, um, all kinds of words, I, I, I'm sure you know what I'm going for. And so getting the truth out of people sometimes is Protective. really tricky. Yeah,
1: yeah, I think that this comes back, it's kind of like the whistleblower issue that we talked about before, but it, it all comes down to critical mass you know, if you get enough people involved in the process that you can say, well, they can't fire us all. That's where you want to be. And guess what? Isn't that what the point of a union is? Yeah. So, uh, you know, it seems that that's why I'm thinking that, the, that there's a role here that, that the union could play in, in creating a critical mass, creating a, 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 a focus group, a, Constant improvement committee, whatever you want to call it, uh, that looks at okay, we're always fighting these guys who want to cut our budgets. Okay. Instead of fighting the the budget cuts, why don't we give them some answers on how we can be more efficient if they change the laws in X, Y, and Z ways? Like instead of constantly having this animosity. Why not give them what they want, which is a plan for for a more cost-effective and cheaper product? And there's got to be enough people that have enough uh, a, a non-self-serving mentality to figure out how to get there.
0: Yeah. Um, I, I think that's an interesting kick, kicking off point here. We're, we're past our three, uh, three o'clock uh, break, so maybe we'll transition in here to some closeout thoughts. But I want to use the, your idea here, Dustin, uh, the union, uh, because I was really sympathizing with Ellie as she was going through the plight of a uh, state worker, government worker, not being supported by the legislature in terms of budget or by onerous reporting requirements to not be able to do your job. <clears throat> that sounds like a form of hell. Uh, you have this job, you um, theoretically uh, have a passion to complete your job, you, you enjoy your job, and now you're not being supported by the by, by a budget or by a rulemaking process to be able to do the job Boy, that sounds like it sucks. Um, and, you know, I'm thinking about this in the context of the great resignation where everyone's getting this confidence to quit their jobs and do something else, uh, which is awesome. We should be really kind of proud as a society that we, we got to the point where everyone feels comfortable enough to quit their job and do something else. Uh, that that's um, that shows we have a lot of confidence in the future uh, as, as a society. Uh, so I'm wondering if there's a lot of people in state government that are like, ah, fuck this, I'm leaving, if it's going to be like this. So yeah, that is that is where the union could step in and be like, well, before everyone quits, maybe we'll just have a strike for one day and be like, okay, now we're, we're going to come back with some ideas on how we can improve um, you know, pr- improve our relationship with, with the legislature. And I think that's what you're getting at, Ellie, with um, just hearing uh, the folks out uh, that are actually doing the work. That's so important if you actually know what the person's struggles, what that department's struggles are to do their job. Uh, if you know that and then you come along with a budgetary figure or maybe some strings attached to the budget or, or some reporting um, requirements maybe you can alter those things that you know if you if you understand what the issues are so it is a, a question of you know we have to be able to have, have better conversations better communication between the legislature and the uh, and the workforce at the state level and that's where again that's where the union could play a, a, a huge crucial role uh, before everyone starts quitting and doing something else and uh but it's
1: got to be an out of the box you know like i i would don't do any strikes. don't do anything that you would typically think a union would do. Do the Strike. opposite. Do do, <laughs> do things that the you would expect the uh you know the legislature to do themselves. You know, the legislature would create an interim committee, study this, they study us, they would hear from the people they want to hear about from. And then they would either make changes that you don't like or they would end up doing nothing at all. Usually nothing at all is the default, right? So uh, do the opposite. To come up with a, a strategy to give them the efficiencies that they're always saying they want. Give them right. the roadmap and say, listen, this is this is where we can agree. There are 15% of the dollars are going to uh to tasks that we don't that that, that do not help us do our job. Let's figure out how to change the direction, and the priority of those at 15% of the money so that it helps do the job, figure out what does and does not need to happen, figure out if there are there are matching funds that we don't really want. If there if we're taking money that isn't actually going to the service, then maybe we shouldn't be taking the money because it's barely paying a portion of the service. And we're covering all this administrative overhead it would be cheaper for us to just pay for the service and, right. and not worry about that and do it our own way uh i mean what, what i'm suggesting is a 10th amendment solution essentially that states you know the, the whole incubator of idea concept that you know Mitt romney always talked about but really didn't know how to articulate uh, is let's find a way different than everybody else and let's have the people doing the work find that way rather than waiting for politicians that don't have a clue about what goes on at the front line.
0: Right. So that's basically internal work, uh, facilitated by union, um, union infrastructure, Mm -hmm. which I think is important. My, My point with the, uh, with the strike would be, uh, to get the legislature to pay attention and listen to them. And I, I don't know if that'd be a little overkill, but they um, close
1: their ears I, at that point. That's, that's well, when they stop paying. Attention. That's when they become a, a, an adversary. And, and what you want to do to, for this concept work, you want to be giving them the cheat sheet here. Here is how you can save money because this is the stuff that we know we could say, be more efficient in doing. If, if things were tweaked this way or that way,
0: right well and and, and yeah. that's a good uh, it's a good um transition into the close out thoughts which is you know the the it's really a um a dual a dueling priority between fraud versus efficiency or fraud slash accountability versus efficiency and you see this thing where like um Someone's gaming the system and so well, we want to stop that. Uh, so we introduced a, a layer of bureaucracy to slow down the fraud uh, or to stop the fraud. But in the process, um, the overall strain on the system uh, is more than what the fraud was in the first place. So you've, you've solved the fraud but now the system has a higher drag efficiency, and so you're actually less efficient. And you know, if we look at the things um, across society that have increased the most in costs in the last forty years, like um, college and uh, healthcare, uh, the thing that has increased has been the admin costs. <laughs> so they're they're they are they they they're trying to solve problems and they're solving problems but creating bigger problems with their solutions. Mm-hmm. And so you have to really take a step back and be like, can, can we allow for a certain amount of fraud? are on, on accountability within this system uh, uh, versus um, you know a better a more efficient system uh, that has a little fraud. Can we, can we live with a little fraud, <laughs> uh, you know, how much can we live with certain certain- If it costs of,
1: 10% more to, to get rid of the 2% of fraud, then it's not, you're not saving any money.
0: Right. It's, it's, a, sometimes it's pure math. And, and yeah. if the cost of reducing the fraud increases uh, creates a loss of efficiency, that's greater than what the fraud was, then yeah, that's, that's crazy. But that sometimes happens and we don't make that mathematical calculation. There, there are other things where you know, we do we do we introduce inefficiencies into the system to catch something that we think is so important that the inefficiency um, that we create is is okay. So that would be like bias. If there's some bias in the system uh, that's creating these hiring discrepancies or wage discrepancies, and we're going to stick in some some things, some reporting requirements to help address the the, the 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 bias or the inequalities, then that would be a thing where we like okay, we can live with the inefficiencies because we're trying to address this long-standing bias. And so, in those instances, I'm okay with it because there is, you know, we've made a calculation that, okay, efficiency is not the master in this particular situation. But, um, you know, the other thing we, we don't think about that we need to think about more would be, um, you know, efficiency versus fraud. It goes, if you take even a step back beyond that, you have this idea of design thinking where you create an environment that creates, um, you know, the circumstances that encourage or disencourage certain behaviors so uh, let's think about like roads most roads are designed to handle the highest uh, throughput uh, in the system so the most efficient movement of cars that's what roads are designed to do what happens when you do that well you got a lot of people that uh, are on these nice roads that are designed for throughput that decide hey i'm just going to go a little bit faster than what they're telling me i can go Uh, but this road is so nice that it's fine. I can do it. I'm a good driver. I'm a great driver. I'll just speed all over the place. And then people are speeding left and right. And then, you know, people get in accidents and deaths and fatalities and injuries. And we're like, Hey, Hey, there's too much accidents happening here. This system is too efficient. (laughs) We got to slow down. And so what do we introduce this stop, which is the traffic police. So the traffic police are here to give you speeding tickets and tell you to put on your blinker and all this other stuff. And, uh, and so that's the that's the fix to that um too, that system's too efficient so now we got to put a stop in there the other thing we could have done back on the front end would be to design roads that weren't all about throughput but were about something else which would may be safe, safe travel throughout your residential areas so you can actually and, and if you designed a road to, that you could only drive like 20 miles on 20 miles an hour on then you wouldn't need traffic cops because the road would say hey slow down dummy and then when you drive on it you would have to slow down because this is the way they've designed the road so if you take a step back you actually can remove the need for bureaucracy the need for accountability just in the way you design something so that that's the ultimate fix as you're having the conversations between the state go, um, state um, legislators and the state employees is how can we create a design that encourages the kind of efficiency and behavior we want from both uh, um, people in this uh, relationship. And if we can get there, then you know we can have a great road to drive on. And no one, no one dies, and uh, it, it serves its purpose. But we 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 thought too much about the throughput on the roads, and now we got to have traffic cops. And now we have traffic cops that, you know, are in in the American culture and and, uh, and biased and and makes certain implicit um, racial judgments and we have all these other kind of unforeseen um, circumstances that all came because we, we created these awesome roads you can drive so fast on um so if we create roads without traffic cops then we solve a lot of problems that um, the cops and the public have when they inter, inter interact this, this uh, so that's the
1: entire concept behind what are called road diets and and this is like why the why main street Bismarck was converted from Two lanes each way to, to one lane each way. And and the controversy there, people didn't understand that the point was to slow people down. That was the point. The point is to keep people home. Now the problem with slowing people down and, and encouraging them not to leave their house to begin with is you get less gas tax money out of it, on top of the fact that the cars are more efficient. And then you don't you can't pay for the roads because that you've overbuilt, you've got twice as many lane miles as you. Need. Uh, and and so then the, the system was already kind of teetering and and this this whole concept is not making the financial side of it any better i can tell you that i mean this is the stuff that we talked about on the special assessments committee for bismarck is you know let's narrow the roads You know, these new developments where the road is 50 foot wide yeah it, it doesn't need to be that way you No, know, i don't I live down in the main part of Bismarck, where the roads are narrow and you can only get one person through at a time uh i don't think that that's good either there, there's a happy medium where everybody gets to drive on the road but nobody gets to you know take up the whole road either
0: right well but maybe you guys could uh to reduce the policing budget if uh, if the gas tax dollars go down because the roads are too narrow <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that's it where causes that...
1: other problems when people can't get around they, they get you know their, their frustration levels go up and get more <laughs> more problems that way because you know then they get the gridlock feeling that they're not getting anywhere and they get road rage and people get crazy <laughs> and and then We're you need, need p- more cops so more I mean, you you got to have a uh, there's a happy balance to all of this and and imposing it on people just because you think it's a good idea you know you gotta you gotta culturally get them up to thinking well, I mean, the current system right. is not working
0: we don't want to impose, so I, you know, I think this all goes back to Ellie's mentioned a couple of times. You just want to be able to create a, um, a scenario where people feel comfortable participating in a discussion. So you have the discussion about, hey, maybe we'll just narrow this road so people aren't, you know, doing forty down this road all the time when it's a twenty-five mile an hour um, uh, speed limit. But it's so it's so easy to drive forty. I'm thinking about going by the, uh, you know, the, that the road that goes by the golf course uh, by BSC. Mm-hmm. that road's 25 miles an hour you cannot drive any slower than like 35 on that road it's Cause tough it's, yeah it's, it's wide it's, open <laughs> you just get going and you're, it's 40 you're already 40 and you're already 15 miles an hour yeah. you can, and it's you can't speed, help that's but why do it's it. a
1: speed trap you know i probably half the tickets i've gotten in my life are right up there at, at the top of my, my <laughs> yeah. divide going down that hill at, at the Capitol because your car just wants to go that fast because it's a it's a highway
0: yeah, it's such a nice road, and you're just cruising. It's a nice view, and, and the person is forty, and you don't know where everybody else
1: is driving forty. Everyone so is you, driving forty. You know, if you're taught to keep up with traffic, it's very difficult to not keep up with traffic. And then you, otherwise, you become the old guy that is going twenty, and everybody is honking at you.
0: <laughs> yeah, what's wrong with this person? <laughs> yeah. So if you could just, and that's the thing is like you, you kind of get. Um, you get kind of mesmerized into speeding just because of the way the desi- the road's been designed and uh, and you didn't mean to do it, it wasn't a conscious choice, but a lot of things, you know, that's the that's the way environment impacts your behavior. And if we can get a little bit um, more un- uh, understanding on that, same thing happens in any other um, situation where you, you're repeating the actions over and over. So um, that was a long-winded way to say, that's my checkout thought. Uh, Ellie, Dustin, any checkout thoughts here before we close shop?
2: Well, I was just going to say that your example is really funny and I like it because I relate because I have the same problem on that road Um, (laughs) and I I am like, I'm like God, like I I can't stop and um, and it's my, you know, I used to work at BSC, and one of my most immediate colleagues in my department, her husband was a campus police person. And so it was, I don't know, there was just a mention of like him pulling people over there or something. So yeah, I mean, that is a good example. And like, yet, you know, I mean, we talk about it, but like, I haven't heard anyone proposing, you know, making that make more sense. Um, so there's obviously a lot of things that are ripe for adjustment in this spirit. So I would say, so just one closing thought is like, Some of the people who are like emotionally ready for this conversation to be really receptive to, you know, different sides um, and, um, you know, sharing a vision with people who disagree with you on some things, but you know you get on the same page with this, those people are a little elusive because some of the people who would be really good are really, really, really busy um, and and so pulling this off is really tricky, and maybe right, maybe not right away. We don't necessarily have all the right people for the long run end game, but some of the brainstormers might be able to get us going. So, like, okay, here's. So I had texted with you guys a little while ago about. Um, I think his name is Steve Markhart, the Bismarck City Commission guy Markhardt, who I yeah. was in. Imp- I was impressed with, okay, he seems extremely busy. So I have mm-hmm. no idea if he could possibly fit this into his life, although I think we'd have a better shot if we made it really chill, like, hey, like let's get lunch or coffee and chat. So maybe that would be, you know, like make it not so demanding, he just seems like a really busy person. And he's so honest that like, if he has to step away from work to address a city commission issue, like he, you know, he clocks his PTO um, and everything. So just knowing his conscientiousness It wouldn't be a casual commitment, but I would love to hear what he had to say. You know, I think he's emotionally ready. He's someone who came across as really mature, really comfortable with just that disagreements exist. And honestly, he seemed very dismayed that things have become so polarized. And he's really not into the polarization. He really wishes things could be better. And um, and so, anyways, like that's the kind of person. I don't know. You know, he's not a legislator. He's a city commission guy. So it's he's not necessarily the right person for the final version of this product or project or whatever you want to think of it as but you know he he's emotionally and intellectually ready and so it that's that's an example of like you know i i see i see a lot of myself in him even though i'm more progressive and he's more conservative and i guess maybe that sounds like i'm flattering myself because um that's me saying I do good and he does good, but I, I just felt like that, that public servant spirit and that integrity was really there. And like a real exhaustion with like just stupid (laughs) polarization and how unhelpful it is that was there too. And I really related to that. Um, So yeah, finding people like that would be really cool. And I think for now, maybe just like low hanging fruit and not biting off more than we can chew is a great start. And I, yeah, if we, if, if we start with people in smaller positions or who have looked at local government, you're not state government, there's still gonna be lessons that translate. And I think that brainstorming will still be helpful because at some point, as we kind of like upgrade to thinking about, okay, now, like we got some good examples going. Now, where in the century code at the state government level is this relevant? Um, I, I sometimes I think that an exercise that is, you know, just a nice example, even if it's not literally what you're going for, can be really helpful. And I think being really open-minded as to who we include um, could help us actually pull this off. And maybe like we start doing some really cool work and then maybe more people wanna get involved. And then that's when, um, you know, we get our final team. But that's just my thinking on this. And, you know, I think I think folks in North Dakota United um, on the one hand, they would agree with a lot of what I've said but I do think some of them would be very nervous about this project. So I think that there's a, there's a right time to bring it to a broader North Dakota United group. And it's not right now. And so I think just trusting my instinct on that and knowing that, you know, I have a lot of work to do to have these conversations and build, start building a little like micro consensus to where, you know, when there's some degree of receptivity on a more conservative, from a more conservative person. And I kind of share that with North Dakota United leadership or membership or whatever, And the proofs in the pudding, I'm like, look, this is, these conversations are going well, look at this. Um, That's when I think there can be more buy-in, but for now it's like, I have to do the homework to make it safe. Um, And so then I need people to do that homework with. So I I just think um, I'm very flexible about it. And I think maybe like a casual working group uh, over a lunch or or coffee or beer or something could be a good start if we can find people willing to, to embark on the little experiment with us and also some people might just go to one meeting with us and tell us what they think and feel and then we don't hear from them again, but they planted seeds that we then you know grew into bigger ideas, And I think that's okay too. And that can help meet people where they're at in terms of their incredibly busy schedules.
1: Back in 2006 when Americans for Prosperity first came to North Dakota and they hired Dwayne Sand and Ed Schaefer to go around the state, they did what was called the Taxpayer Trust Tour. And they used the big, you know, the big uh, uh, notepad on the easel, poster paper stuff. And they had come up with like 270 ideas from these focus groups that they did around the state. Uh, And then consolidated them into an Excel, uh, trying to, you know, put them into categories where things that were worded a different way were saying the same thing. And at the end of the day, it was like that 270 things really fit into about 15 areas. Everybody was agreeing on 15 areas. They were just arguing about the wording of how to describe those areas. Um, and and so when you talk about somebody like Steve Marcourt who you know from is more my kind of conservative, who, who is not only philosophically conservative, and maybe is not as Philosophical as a lot of people would like, because I get a lot of calls from people that are upset with him and Steve Bakken. I mean, I've gotten calls in the last six weeks, three separate calls from different people saying it's time to recall both Bakken and Mark Horton. I'm like, no, it's not. And and I spend an hour and a half talking these people down off the ledge of thinking that there's something wrong there. Uh, So, I mean, essentially, I've become their spin uh, communications director without getting paid for it. But uh, Mark Court especially is willing to put in the work. And he's an average Joe guy. He literally works at Menards, you know, just customer service type of stuff. Uh, but he's he goes to all the agency and department meetings. He talks with people. He he probably puts in more time than he absolutely has to. But I would rather have a guy who is slightly more moderate than he should be, who's willing to do the work. Than a guy who's just a flamethrower, right winger that has no interest in knowing anything about what's going on, and we have one of those on the commission too, uh, and so, uh, you know, what what that's the type of person you do need. And here's the problem: is that there are not a lot of elected officials that are willing to do the work and go to more than just the absolute required meetings. there, there are too many elected officials who think that their job is to pass laws and spend money and anything else they don't care about. They're not interested in learning how the system works, how it got there. They 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 criticize it without knowing what is going on. And that is their claim to fame and they and they repeat everything without any basis for it. You know, and and I think that everybody starts out doing that, but if you're in office for you know more than 4 years and you're still doing that you're basically a brick wall and you're there's nothing is going to change your mind uh i do believe that a person has to start with a, fil- a conservative philosophy but if they're not willing to learn about the minutiae of how things actually work they're never going to figure out how to get the conservative version of government that they want and and that person to me is fairly useless because if they're not Willing to learn how the system works and then changing it in a way that actually results in the the, the changes that you truly want and not the unforeseen circumstances and consequences uh that at, if you're not willing to do that then then you're not going to get where you want to go so uh finding those people both within the elected ranks and in the employee ranks is very difficult because in the employee ranks you get people that are worried about job security and oh i get 10 more years till i retire with a pension so those people aren't going to want to rock the boat you know people there that, that are already got their eye on their pension are the last people that are willing to rock the boat now the people that just retired and don't have to worry that might be the uh the 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 target zone to, to hit because once they're out and they don't have to worry that they will tell you a hundred possible ways to fix the system because it doesn't affect them anymore. Uh, so maybe that might be uh, the, the people that are old enough that retired or the people that went into the private sector because they could make three times as much money. Those two groups might be uh, just as important as people on the job now.
2: Well, let's, brainstorm people who we think might even though there's not many (laughs) um that that, that'll make it easy for us to think of who is good because you know Mm -hmm. they stand out in their minds as very unusual uh people and let's just brainstorm some people and then see if we can get like a coffee group or beer group or something going i mean i have some more ideas beyond just steve um and i yeah. And I mean, I think there are other things to balance, like like there's this one uh, retired uh, former public sector person who I've been interested in working with. But then I got this warning that he's uh, really quite difficult towards women. It's like, oh, great. You know, And it's just like, you know, so it, it there also is like, uh, there are people who have a great public servant spirit but maybe they're kind of old and sexist and that's obviously going to be really like if they don't take me seriously this endeavor's not going to go well so you know and so we just have to kind of be realistic about where people are at and um yeah i think i mean you're right on we need people who care about governance more than they care about politics and that's like my new thing is like i i'm just so like just barf emoji about politics right now like I just uh, can't even and like all I care about right now is governance because i'm just so tired of how stupid politics can be and so i'm all about the, the governance people. Um, but yeah the the emotional readiness like Mark Hort, uh just he just had a vibe where it was like oh my god this guy's really honest really down to earth. Willing to say uncomfortable things that has helped genuinely helpful to hear like someone like that I just don't have concerns, you know like right. i'm like Okay, he already passed my test and there's yeah. other people where i'm like well, so I just think let's let's brainstorm some people and. Um, and then maybe just kind of take the conversation from there see if we can we'll start we can start real casual just to build a little bit of a space for it and worry about formalizing the process downstream when I think you know it's just more. It's not so half baked.
1: See, and, and Mark in my mind, is the type of person that would be perfect to bump up to legislature, but he can't afford to do it, and and that's a problem. You know, it, you know he, yeah. he he would be a, he would be a great chairman for the, the House Education Committee as somebody who was a school board president with city experience. So he he knows the stuff. He knows what they deal with, uh, but because he's a regular Joe with a regular job, he can't take four or five months off plus all the interim time uh, that, that becomes a problem in getting the, the, the ideal people. And it just comes down to, you know, the people who sh- who shouldn't be there are, and the people who should don't want to be there or can't afford to be there.
2: Uh, I know. And I mean, I don't even know what to do about that other than at least, give people the acknowledgement and recognition they deserve and point out that the system clearly isn't working when it doesn't you know hold space for some of the best people um but yeah i mean you know we can just you know who knows i mean maybe with if term limits pass maybe the ecosystem will be so different that like i mean i don't know i'm just winging it there but um but yeah in the meantime um at least we can uh, work with and appreciate the talents and seriousness of people who we wish were in higher
0: yeah. uh,
2: positions of office and um but yeah ryan so um so yeah ryan uh, let us know if you brainstorm anybody who you think is a good fit too
1: ryan left us he, he, he oh sorry uh, I, didn't even,
2: I didn't catch that okay yeah
1: no he, he he uh decided that we were not abiding by the rules and he went on strike, so uh, I think that that is our cue to uh, pull the cord here.
2: Well, I think he endorses our discussion, so I'm sure yeah. he'll he'll participate. Cool. Well, that'll be it for today then.
0: Okay.